0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Aligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show David Laws, Executive Chairman of the Education Policy Institute. And David's also a former schools minister in the coalition government so today we're going to be looking at the field of education education research in particular and we're going to be focusing on narrowing that education gap between rich and poor we're going to look at creating and communicating strong evidence and a strong evidence base engaging with policymakers and the media we're going to touch a little bit on early childhood education and the importance of that vat possible vat on independent schools a great deal more. So you're in for a treat. And without further ado, David, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Well, good to see you again. And so you're the executive chairman of the Education Policy Institute. Why don't we start there? What's the Institute all about?
1: Yeah, we established the Education Policy Institute uh, back in 2016. And it was really an attempt to establish a completely politically independent, rigorous quantitative research institute that could give practical advice to policymakers about what works and what doesn't work to improve education outcomes and i suppose the evolution of it is a little bit in my my own interest in uh, education and having been a schools minister in government in the uk And realising the limited extent to which uh, policymakers in all of the political parties have uh, good evidence-based policies to be able to um, uh, reach for when they're in government and have proper accountability for the policies that they're implementing so that we learn from that. And in the UK, as you know, we've got this great thing called the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which does on tax policy and economic policy, what we're trying to do at EPI, it actually provides evidence about what's happening in terms of tax and fiscal policy. It holds policymakers to account, and it gives them useful analysis, which helps them to make, hopefully, intelligent policy decisions. So we're trying to do in education what the IFS is doing for tax and fiscal policy.
0: Excellent. And in terms of the uh, the size of the team, the the uh, particular research interest within education. Give us a little bit of insight into that.
1: Yeah, we're still a small team. You know, we're only 25 people. We're trying to cover everything in education from the very earliest years right through um, formal early years, education, school, college, university, lifelong learning. So it's a very large uh, area of um, of policy. and We probably need to be a bigger team. Uh, but we've been growing over the last um, seven or so years. And it's important since we are a charity and we have to be self financing, it's important that we grow at a rate where we can actually pay for ourselves from the work that we're doing, from the often from um, big foundations, charitable foundations that are interested in funding high quality, rigorous work that uh, helps to analyze these policy questions.
0: Yeah. I love the fact that not only are you creating that body of evidence, that knowledge base on education, but you having been in government, you actually know what it takes to ensure that your research doesn't just sit in some archive, but actually genuinely engages with that policymaker, informs that policymaker, especially at the time when they are hopefully going to make the right vote.
1: Yeah, I think there's a real problem in terms of research that informs social policy, there's a lot of spending on it. Uh, but as you hint, quite often the products end up gathering dust in university libraries, either because they're not communicated properly or they don't address issues that the policymakers are interested in. And when I think back on my time as schools minister for in government for three or so years, I can remember virtually no research, either from the higher education community, or even from research institutes that made its way into the education department, and that influenced the decisions that ministers were making. And that that may a little bit be a fault of government and ministers who think they know best. But it's also, I think, a criticism of the research community that don't do enough to communicate their research to make it topical and to make it helpful to ministers you know generally on the whole you have to believe that ministers want to make the right decisions that they want to have positive impacts that they want evidence on their side too often they don't know what that actually means
0: how difficult is it to ensure that that research actually makes its way to the radar of, of that policymaker, and that it's in a language that that policymaker can actually understand, because I imagine you know not everybody's academic and academic, right?
1: I, I think the easy thing is to is to be able to uh, summarize complex research and uh, boil it down to the the policy impacts. We don't find it difficult to do that. We're used to that translation process. I think the tough things are. Um, are these you know firstly if the research evidence doesn't back up government's hunches it often might not want to listen if essentially the research appears to be a criticism secondly ministers and other policy makers just incredibly busy uh, you know there is there's so many competing uh, issues that they're dealing with every day that you may get a really interesting report out you may have a massive media coverage of it but it still doesn't necessarily mean that the person in government that you want to influence has noticed it and i think those are probably the two you know biggest uh problems that we that we have to grapple uh with the bandwidth of ministers and making sure that advice um is stuff that that ministers can engage with, even when it's not always saying the things that they want it to say.
0: Now, you mentioned the um, the Education Policy Institute. It's apolitical. Um, but you have a political background. Uh, does your presence uh, in any way help or hinder your ability to engage equally across the spectrum of, of political views?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that I haven't found it a big problem in terms of leadership of EPI and engaging with other organizations and in some senses having been a minister in government gets you through some doors in terms of funders and other politicians and policymakers that it would be difficult for a new organization otherwise to interact with and certainly having been in government it makes me alert to the ways you communicate with government you catch their attention how to communicate research in a way that the media is interested. All of those things are important. So it's largely been a positive thing. Where it's a, where I sometimes find it a struggle is that if I try to go on the media to talk about our research reports, the media finds it difficult to engage with somebody that they're used to engaging with as a politician in a new guise. So very often the media wants to default back to asking you about things that are in politics or grilling you in a political style when you're trying not to be political. So I think I found that the most tricky thing. You know, how do you uh, engage with the media uh, in your new guise and how do you do that without one hand tied behind your back? You know, so you're you're being asked very tough political questions and you're trying to answer them in a
0: very objective
1: down the line way that's been the biggest
0: challenge you got to tell them to give you a break to say look i've stepped back from the political stage (laughs) yeah that
1: doesn't always work
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's fine and so i'd love to delve a little bit into an area that i know is close to your heart it's a it's a research area as well which is you know sort of this um this policy focus on narrowing the the education gap between rich and poor Give us a little bit of a context of where things are right now, and then perhaps we can drill into some of the research and some of the, uh, yeah. the policy areas.
1: I mean, we're very focused on this because I think it's probably our biggest challenge in the United Kingdom. In some ways, it probably is in the US that at the top end of our education system, we both have some of the best institutions in the world that are looked at as exemplars. People come from all over the world to attend the best UK universities as they do, the best US ones. We have some fantastically high-performing schools. We have lots of students that do really well in education. But the tale of underachievement, uh, which is very long and highly associated with income and social class, is really the uh, weakness of our education system in the UK, as arguably it is in the US. And if we could only close that gap, between rich and poor, we'd actually have an an education system that would be genuinely uh, one of the best in the world. So we're very focused on closing those gaps uh, between rich and poor children, between children with special educational needs and the rest with different types of ethnic groups um, across the country, uh, and at all, you know, different ages in people's lives. And one of the best things we do each year is we produce an annual report, which looks at how those gaps are developing and translates them from data and measurements, which are very difficult for the public to access and understand, to measures which are much easier to understand. So our key measure is the months of learning that different pupils are behind the average of other pupils. And what we show, for example, is that at age 16 in England, poor children, the the 25% of poorest children, are around a year and a half of learning on average behind all of the rest of the pupils. I don't mean the top performing pupils or the most affluent, but all of those who are categorized as non-poor. And that is is not just a poor versus non-poor the longer you're in poverty, the deeper you're in poverty, the worse your attainment will be. So actually the gap between children who are in poverty for most of their time in education and other poor children is just as big as the gap between the short-term poor children and the rest of the people population. The the long-term poor are about two years of education behind and the short-term poor are about a year behind. And the depressing thing about the long-term, persistently deep-in-poverty young people is even over the last 20 years, when for quite a long period up until COVID, we were narrowing these gaps, the children in deep and persistent poverty, they weren't catching up at all with the rest of the people population. In spite of all of the things that we've been trying to do, all of the different policy solutions, uh, those children in, in deep poverty have not uh, managed
0: to catch up at all with the rest. And there must be an intergenerational angle to this as well.
1: Yes. I mean, I think that there are so many aspects of this that we think we understand, but we need to get more under the under the surface of, that I'm sure that there will be intergenerational connections here. I mean, the children who are poor are poor because their parents are poor, their parents are long-term poor and they probably find that their parents also have been uh, living in in, uh, poverty or high levels of disadvantage or worklessness. And um, I'm not sure we've understood this fully in the UK. Even when I was a minister, we didn't really distinguish between uh, children in different um, types of poverty. And we tended to measure the performance of different schools and parts of the country in a very simplistic way, just looking at how many poor children were there and discovering that some parts of the country were performing terribly versus others. Actually, what we, what our analysis has now shown is, is why some of the poor areas are performing so badly. And it's often because their type of poverty, the long-term and deep nature of that poverty, is different from areas that might look similar, but where the type of poverty or the ethnicity of the population is totally different so we have in the past condemned some parts of the country in some schools as doing a really bad job, when actually the problem that they've got is their job is just much tougher uh, than schools or other parts of the country because of the, the type of people that they're trying to uh, deal with and, and, and educate.
0: What are the key policy r- recommendations to narrow this gap? that you'd like to ensure policymakers, irrespective of their political colours, but to ensure that they embrace, that they understand, and that they execute?
1: Yeah, I think the evidence in the UK and from around the world points to a number of things that don't work all that well, but it also points to some of the solutions. And perhaps unsurprisingly, but importantly, where we see evidence of of a higher quality of leadership um, and governance in schools that's associated with better people performance, where we see um, money being effectively targeted on children with the highest levels of disadvantage. That additional spend seems to be more effective than a generalised increase in expenditure. Uh, we see a lot of the gaps emerging in the earliest years of education. So trying to close gaps early is important. Um, and I suppose the other thing is simply the relationship between teacher quality and the stability of the teaching workforce and pupil outcomes. And it's a really tough job for policymakers to think about how they get some of our best teachers and leaders into our most challenging schools, when often you know, there are many reasons why teachers and leaders might be cautious about uh, going to those institutions, particularly as they're held very tightly to account for performance, and it's tougher to get good performance in schools with high levels of disadvantage. So I think those are some of the takeaways. And then the other really obvious takeaway, which is so obvious that sometimes it's not taken fully account of by policymakers is there there is simply this iron relationship between poverty And educational outcomes, you know, if you plot the two against each other and stick something up on your wall, you've got a straight line that's rising, you know, upwards from, from bottom left up to top right, and the richer you are, the the better on average your attainment is, and vice versa. And good education policy can flatten that line a bit. And it can certainly help children from poorer backgrounds in quite a big way. We've seen that. But it can't rub out completely the impacts of economic disadvantage and all of the implications of those for what's happening to children outside the school environment. So if we really want to narrow some of these gaps, we have to have schools policy and wider social policy working in, in, in step and not uh, choose between one of the two.
0: You touched on the early years and the increasing importance of, of that. There is a correlation between a mother's degree of educational attainment and her child's expected life outcomes and how they perform in education. And I remember meeting with one of your former colleagues, Frank Field, who used to be really focused on the early years bit. Uh, i and and I found it very interesting. I think that's probably heartening that across the political spectrum, there's probably an a, an increasing appreciation of of how getting it right in those early years, Is a way of overcoming some of the challenges with that strong correlation with poverty?
1: Yeah, the attitude of policymakers to early years is a bit incoherent at times. Uh, On the whole, there's a tendency to say, yes, we must invest early, and this is crucial for long-term outcomes, and we all support early years' development. But I think that there are two other factors that cut across that and compromise it. One is that often the political debate tends to be more about cheap childcare to help parents to get into employment, and also to reduce cost of living pressures because of the cost of childcare. And that tends to dominate in government, particularly when you're coming up to elections over the long term educational issues around early years. So politicians tend to prioritise how can we push people back into employment by, by making childcare cheaper, And how can we, you know, make their bottom line income position better by giving them more free childcare? And cheap childcare is often not the same as high quality childcare. And the governments also sometimes take deliberate decisions to give more childcare to people who are in employment, uh, understandably, if you're thinking of a childcare purpose, rather than giving the extra money to Uh, low-income families where the parent won't always be in work. And that can take you away from early years development, you know, because you end up giving a higher entitlement to parents who are working than those who are not. It's prioritising the childcare logic over the early years development. The other thing is I think that you have to be very patient on early years policy. We've had a number of different initiatives over time. You know, Labour had this programme called Sure Start, which was taken from the US Head Start programme. And a lot of the early outcomes from that seemed to be quite disappointing to many people. It didn't, it wasn't a magic one solution. But I think what we learned from that is firstly, the importance of quality. And secondly, the importance of uh, investing a lot over a very sustained period of time and ratcheting up the quality of delivery. Uh, And some of the longer term outcomes for those children actually have been measurably better but it doesn't seem to be have a magic one short-term effect on attainment. And then politicians rather lose patience. So I think there's a lot more that we sh- should probably be spending on early years. There's a lot more needed to raise quality. And there needs to be a greater recognition that these things take time and they're not amenable to overnight solutions.
0: Yeah. And I guess precisely on that last point, that they take time not amenable to short-term solutions there's a mismatch between the the election cycle yes of a po- right and and uh, and the payout from investing in high quality early childhood education
1: yeah there absolutely is and at the end of my time in government um in the very last budget uh, the the then chancellor george osborne wanted to prioritize a policy of Uh, increasing hours of early years education for those people in employment and giving double the entitlement of hours to uh, those people in work compared with out of work. And that, to me, was completely the wrong direction of travel if you are concerned about early years development. I had a slight sort of um, moment of emotion and freak out over it, which, which ended up with... My party leader, the deputy prime minister, then vetoing the policy just as the budget was about to go to the printers. Uh, unfortunately, by 2015 spring, we were then out of government and the the successor government then did exactly what we would managed to veto. But it is very tempting before elections for parties to focus on the short term and the immediately electorally attractive and long term. Uh, development uh, and improvement of of life chances doesn't always feel as urgent to politicians as putting money in people's pockets before an election.
0: And sticking with that uh, theme of uh, political transition and governments coming in, governments coming out, it's not inconceivable that there might be some new faces in Downing Street in the, the near future. Uh, one of the key topics that seems to be coming up over and over again, if you're reading any of the headlines as well, is the issue about independent schools, uh, charitable status, taxation? What's your take on it? And um, and before you answer that, I, I did have a really great episode not that long ago with our mutual friend uh, Julie Robinson, who's the head of the Independent Schools Council, and Professor Francis Green, uh, who is at UCL. Very different views on this, uh, but it's it's worth listening to that episode for reference. Yeah.
1: I mean, at EPI, we've got a great uh, director of research called Luke Sibietta, and he also works for the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and he's published a report on this issue of of VAT on independent school fees a few weeks ago, which I think is likely to prove the sort of go-to piece of analysis on the issue. And, you know, it it, it tends to suggest that... um, you know, if you introduce VAT, it will have some uh, demand and other consequences, as some of the critics indicate, but not as significant as some of those critics suggest. So I think it's a really good piece of work that informs uh, the policymakers, but actually it's unlikely to change their mind because it tends to be ideology that informs a lot of people's attitudes to this issue. And I'm not sure that people on the extremes of the debate are particularly open to looking at evidence and changing their mind. My own personal view is that um, you know, most of the independent schools in this country have had their roots in a charitable c- commitment you know, to improve education, including for many of those who now can't afford to go to independent schools. And some of the best independent schools in this country still have uh, that charitable commitment, and they spend a lot of time and energy and money in um, doing work either by granting places to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to go to their schools or doing work in partnership with state-funded schools that carries that charitable mission forward. And I would like to see the independent sector do more to um, to justify the existing Uh, charitable position and tax advantages that they have Um, but that whether that whether we go down that route probably depends upon what the balance is in the next parliament because at the moment the conservative and labor parties have very clear positions on this and I don't think the research evidence is going to cause them to change their minds on it.
0: Now many independent schools sometimes people think you know independence I don't know you you start thinking about Eton and places like that, but many independent schools, it's not like they're flush with cash, right? I mean, they- No,
1: they're... there's a very big uh, range. You know, when I was a constituency MP in Somerset in the in the Southwest, there were a number of independent schools in my constituency, but all of them were quite, you know, struggled financially. And actually, a couple of them, I think, are no longer in business. They've, they've uh, struggled so much over the years that they've not been able to sustain themselves. And if you compare those to the elite independent schools in the UK that we all tend to think of, um, they are much stronger. You know, they um, rely upon parents who are very affluent and have very uh, large incomes uh, that rely upon students from overseas, from families that are very affluent. And their ability to uh, cope with an increase in taxation and fee levels is probably far greater than the more marginal independent schools that charge far far lower fees. And I think it's those schools that would uh, come more under pressure if there is a policy of increasing taxation on, on fees.
0: It's a fascinating space and narrowing that gap, uh, not not easy to do. I also think about parents who may not be that affluent, who do struggle to send their kids to independent schools because they wish to do so. Obviously, that presents a challenge, especially then when we're looking at the admissions process from a university's perspective, where there's an increasing emphasis of moving a little bit away from from, from the independent schools. So it's, um, it's a multifaceted conversation. Yeah, right? it's a very tricky issue. And, and I personally, again, coming
1: back to my personal views, would love to see independent schools doing, as some of them do, much more to take the most disadvantaged peoples into their institutions and give them the opportunities that many of their existing students have. And they could play a useful role for you know thousands of students at least in closing that gap that we talked about earlier. But it's tricky because uh, that does mean prioritizing perhaps the bottom 25% economically. There are other people who believe that um you know schools should be open to people on middle income whose parents are not poor but they're not capable of of affording the access then that gets very difficult and complicated to run and of course there is a risk that independent schools just cherry pick the students you know whose parents are not quite the most affluent but they're reasonably affluent and the pupils are likely to perform very well and actually, we I think if the policy is to really close the gap, we don't want independent schools simply cherry-picking the students who would already do quite well. We want them to take, as some of them do, students who have really disadvantaged life circumstances but do have the potential to benefit from uh, the the work that some of these independent schools do and that can really transform their life chances.
0: Where, can some, where would you point someone to... Um... Someone who wants to get better informed on this topic, who wants to delve into it beyond the thirty minutes that you and I are are spending on it today, where should they go? I'd first point them to the excellent report that
1: Luke Sibyatta did uh, recently, um, which uh, is an IFS publication, not an EPI one, but he works across both organisations. That's great. But I'd also point them to you know organisations like the Schools Partnership Alliance and some of the other organizations that work um, to try to get looked after children into the independent school settings. And they're already doing some fantastic work alongside schools like Christ's Hospital that have a long-term, you know, uh, well-established commitment to uh, access for very large numbers of children who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford a place in the independent sector.
0: I love the work you're doing. I love the research area. I have to ask you, Give us a little bit of insight into that sort of career trajectory, that personal narrative, and uh, and how is life today versus what it used to be when you were in government? Uh, you know, different, different uh, functions, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose my career trajectory is a slightly odd one. Um, from independent school to Cambridge to do economics, into banking with J.P. Morgan, into becoming the sort of lowest paid researcher pretty much in our parliamentary party towards becoming an MP and now going from parliament and ministerial job into running a research organization. It's not what everybody does, but a consistent theme uh, since I was myself in education at an independent school, which was not one of the elite schools, but was nevertheless a very privileged environment is that, all, or that I'd always felt a st- strongly about the opportunities that I enjoyed in the early part of my life being much more widely available. I always had that. I suppose that's one of the things that drove me into politics, that desire that opportunities should be more equal in the country. That's why when I was in politics, I asked to uh, go into the education job. It's why I was keen to become schools minister in government. It's why I'm running an education research organisation now. So I suppose that's been the continuing uh, theme in my life. Now, being in government, particularly if you're there with other people who are powerful and help you to get things done, because sometimes being in government (laughs) isn't as powerful as people like to think it is. But having the privileged position I had when I was in government of having support from people like the Deputy Prime Minister who had a similar view on the policy agenda it could help me get things done was absolutely you know the best job that I will probably ever have and uh something that I think most people would uh would relish having that influence and ability to really make change and when you lose that uh, particularly you know in a guillotine type way as often happens in politics it's difficult for a while to adjust to the differences And also to adjust to a life where you're not occupied from 6.30am until midnight, you know, pretty much seven days a week. Um, But I guess, A, I've acclimatised to a new and different sort of pattern of working, and perhaps enjoy my weekends a bit more than I was once able to. But also you recognise that in public policy and in life, there are different ways of influencing outcomes. And sometimes... Being a minister is a very powerful and effective thing to do. But there are plenty of ministers who have very little influence on policy outcomes. Um, and by influencing thinking and the intellectual environment and supplying evidence to policymakers of what works and doesn't work, I think you can have an influence on policy and out and hopefully outcomes that... Um, Maybe different from being there with the levers of control in your hands in government, but it is it's real and tangible nonetheless.
0: Fascinating. It's similar in some respects, even though it's a different sector. But I asked Paul Pullman, you know, that difference between when he was running Unilever versus what he's doing now uh, with Imagine. They're different, uh, perhaps a different pace, but actually, interestingly, sometimes you can influence things in a different way that perhaps when you are ostensibly in power. your hands are tied. Before you run off today, a key takeaway. What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode?
1: I think that education and good education policy can do a lot. But education policy operating in an environment where all of the other out of school factors are making it more difficult for teachers and educators uh, can't affect the transformation by itself. And I think it's great that over the last um, couple of decades that there's been more of an appreciation of how important education is and what great educators can do. But we we shouldn't take that too far. If, if we think that education is the answer to all of our social problems, we'll ignore the problems outside the school gate without which we can't really achieve the ambitions and aspirations that many people
0: have indeed indeed david thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the do one better podcast today great seeing you again and here's to your uh, continued success helping us understand the the challenges and dynamics of the world of education so thank you thank you good to be with you perfect and that's a wrap thanks very much for tuning in as always you've been listening to a great chat with david laws executive chairman of the education policy institute for information about this conversation and more than 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy sustainability and social entrepreneurship just visit our website at liji.org that's l-i-d-j-i.org please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already and do leave us a rating and a review it helps others to find this show as well thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show for you hope you found it insightful and enjoyable as well and i'll catch you this coming monday